I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you brought one, to John chapter 10. We will have the words on the screen if you didn't have one. Uh, feel welcome also to go in your device if you have a special app and a Bible app and follow along with us. If you're new with us, um, <clears throat> I guess by way of warning, um, I will remind you we're in a gymnasium. And uh, depending on where you sit, if the air is on, it's like polar vortex in here. So feel free to shuffle around. Uh, some of our regulars bring uh, coats. Um, so sorry in your cute Easter dresses if you didn't do that. Uh, you can move around where necessary. A uh, Sunday school teacher um, asked her first grade uh, boys and girls, recapping um, the plan of salvation that she had shared with them the week before. She said, uh, boys and girls, can anyone tell me how you get to heaven? And no one really wanted to answer quickly. A little boy in the back shoots up his hand. She calls on him and he said, well, you first got to die. And that's partly true, right? This Easter weekend, we celebrate the cross and the resurrection. And either one without the other doesn't make a whole lot of sense. The cross of Jesus was voluntary. Jesus was completely in charge of his living and his dying. He said in John 10, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me but I lay it down on my own accord. Jesus scoffed at threats that he could be brought to death before his hour. Many times people wanted to bring him to his death and he simp simply slipped through their hands. His death was voluntary. It was vicarious, meaning it was in our place. This idea wasn't new. The concept of Christ's death as a substitution is present at the very beginning of his ministry. For example, in John chapter 1, when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he points to him and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Romans 4.25 would remind us that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It was vicarious. Jesus died in your place, in my place. While we were yet sinners, Scripture says, Christ died for us. Insert your name there. But what we celebrate today is that the death of Christ on the cross, his burial, his resurrection three days later was victorious. This is why we celebrate this morning. This is why those who follow Jesus woke up with a, with a different mindset this morning. Maybe that's your first thought. As you see each other, you greet each other with Happy Easter. You are remembering the victorious death of Christ and his resurrection. Not just that he is risen, but in his rising, he proved that death had no power over him. Again, the book of Romans chapter 6 and verse 9. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives unto God. Peter would say something similar, that God raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Before, during, and afterwards, the resurrection of Jesus was a glorious display of the divine power of God. Jesus was victorious. And so I want to celebrate that this morning, and I want to look at a passage Maybe not too familiar with the resurrection text or doesn't normally go with it, but there's a lot in here. And I want to answer the question, why are we celebrating today? What was it on Easter morning? What was it that within a few days transformed a band of mourners and spiritual cowards 
into spiritual conquerors of the world. It was not the memory of Jesus' life. It was not inspiration that came from past contact and interaction with him. It was the message, he is risen. It became the predominant message of the apostles throughout the book of Acts, that they would preach the gospel, they would preach the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If the historical Jesus is something other than the Jesus who died for our sins, was buried and raised to life again, then he was a failure and a fraud, and we're mistaken, Paul would say, in our devotion to him. Apart from the resurrection of Christ, there is no Savior, there's no salvation, there's no forgiveness of sins, there's no hope of resurrected eternal life. Apart from the resurrection, Jesus Christ is just another good but dead man. I was reading this week an author, uh, Philip Yancey. He wrote a couple books you might be familiar with. One, The Jesus I Never Knew. This is what he said. This is kind of what shook me up this week as I was studying. In many respects, he says, I would find an unresurrected Jesus easier to accept. Easter makes him dangerous. Because of Easter, I have to listen to his extravagant claims and can no longer pick and choose from his sayings. Easter means he must be out there somewhere. I never know where Jesus might turn up and how he might speak to me and what he might ask of me. Easter makes him dangerous, he says. What are the extravagant claims that Yancey is speaking of? Jesus made several extravagant claims as he walked the earth and preached sermons on hillsides and did life with the, uh, the disciples. He said that he was the bread of life, the very bread of heaven. That by partaking of him that you would um, have satisfaction and joy. He said that he was the way, the truth, and the life. That no one could come to the Father. No one could get eternal life except through him. He said he was the resurrection and the life. Astonishing claims. Basically, Jesus says there's no real meaningful life apart from him. And the one that stuck out to me, this astonishing claim, maybe the most this week, struck a chord with my heart is in John 10, 10. Starting in verse 7, Jesus says, Truly, truly, in John 10, verse 7, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. You're familiar probably with that passage, right? Uh, life overflowing, your translation may say, that he compares and contrasts the thief who has come to kill, steal, and destroy. And on the other side, that Jesus says, but by me and through me, I'm the door, I'm the gates, and only through me will you find life and life overflowing or abundantly. In an agrarian society, those listening to Jesus' words here would have more completely understood exactly what we was, he was saying. Maybe it went over some of our heads as it did mine the first time I read it. As the shepherds would graze through the wilderness, it was a scary place. And at night, many of these shepherds would have to set up a makeshift pen with one door, one way in, one way out. And the shepherds themselves would be the gate. They would sit down and even sleep at the entrance in the doorway so that they could keep the sheep in, so they wouldn't wander away and get lost, and that they would keep danger out. 
Understanding that, Jesus is making this point when he says in verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. Again, the thief comes to still kill and destroy. I've come that they have life and have it abundantly. He goes on to say, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves, and the sheep flee. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing of the sheep. In contrast, verse 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have also other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. Again, no one takes it from me. I lay it down on my accord. So Jesus makes several claims in this passage that we should make note of. First, that there is a real enemy. Here he calls them the thief or the thief and the robber. And his goal is simply to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Now in our modern society, we don't like to think of evil in this way, but surely you saw the news this morning of the bombings in Sri Lanka, as people try to celebrate with millions, billions across the globe, Easter Sunday, and yet there's real evil out there. And Jesus says, don't be surprised that there's evil, and also don't be surprised that his goal is to kill, still, and destroy. Now, he doesn't show his cards up front like that. He hides them. Normally, within the framework of these two ideas, religion and morality, or rebellion. Religion and morality says if I just do all the right things, then God's ultimately going to be happy with me and I'll be accepted. I'm just going to try to do my best and work hard and be polite and be a good citizen. I'm just going to try to do good and hopefully the good that I do will outweigh the bad that I do. And then a just and loving God will one day when I get to heaven and stand before him, I will make it into heaven. But that's exhausting, is it not? If you're honest with yourself, always working to prove your worth and actually it's never going to work. You're never going to be good enough on your own. The Pharisees tried to live like this and Jesus encountered them. And what did he say? Well, be perfect like I am perfect. Holy like I am holy. Of course, it's a standard that we can never measure up to, even the very best of us on our very best days. If you woke up this morning at 3 a.m. and fasted and prayed and you went to every sunrise service there possibly was, you cast out some demons at some of the, you know, the workers at Starbucks this morning and you healed some man and then you showed up here, right, and you were just engaged in worship and Your righteousness, Scripture says, is still as filthy rags. It's still garbage before God who is holy. You can't earn your way into his family is what Scripture is saying. If you could be good enough on your own, then Jesus wouldn't have come. He wouldn't have needed to. There would be no need for him to die. That's what religion says. I can be good enough on my own. The other tactic that the enemy uses, the thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy, is rebellion. 
This is the attitude that our culture has embraced maybe in totality. Just do what you want. And just do what feels right. Go with your heart. Yet scripture says that don't trust your heart because it is wicked. Society or culture would say push past the boundaries. Get into the wilderness where you can be free. Of course, you may have tried this in your own past. This brings no lasting satisfaction or joy. Sin always brings destruction in the end. It might be fun for a season, but it only leads to death. When you listen to the voice of the thief, you have to remind yourself he wants to only kill, steal, and destroy. He doesn't care about you or your flourishing. He cares only for himself. He will leave you wrecked in the end. This is what sin does. Against this opposition, Jesus warns, and I want us to listen on this Easter morning. Jesus says, you don't need rebellion or religion, you just need me. I am the door. You can trust me. Jesus promises three things to us that will happen if we enter through Jesus, if we go by way of Jesus as the door. One, it says the sheep will listen and know the shepherd's voice. He says that he will call us by name and we will know his voice. I was reading an article this week, a history article in the 80s when um, the Palestinian uprising was happening in the the places of Israel that some of the Israeli forces just went into a village and took all the sheep as a way to uh, make them adhere to the rules and they put all these sheep in this one big pen. This Palestinian woman, a widow, came to the, uh, the soldiers one day and said, listen, this, these sheep are my only uh, way of livelihood, and I need them in a desperate way. Her and her son came pleading their case, and the soldier said, listen, even if your sheep were in here, there's no way up for us to find them out. We can't track them down. There's no visible markings on them. There's no tags in their ears. How do I know you're just not going to steal some sheep? The lady argues, well, well my sheep, they, 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 know, they know my call. Flustered with the whole deal, the soldier just said, well, if you can call and get 25 of these several hundred sheep just to move out of the flock and follow you, then you can certainly take them home. So our son started playing his little flute, as a lot of the shepherds did, playing this little song. And lo and behold, 25 sheep look up and say, hey, man, that's our our song. And they just start uh, following, right, this little call of the flutes and followed them all the way home. This is what Jesus is saying here, that the sheep will listen and will know the shepherd's voice. He says that he will call us by name. This means that the voice of Jesus will become the loudest voice in our lives. And this is important, church, because we have so many voices in our lives, do we not? Voices in our minds leading us in competing directions. Voices everywhere through social media, through advice of a neighbor and a friend, even in our own heart and mind, a lot of times we stand at the fork in the road and we have no idea what to do. But Jesus says for his sheep, the voice of Jesus becomes the loudest voice in our lives. Paul talks about this as he admonished us to take our very thoughts captive and take them to Jesus to see if he would approve of us meditating and musing on these thoughts. Now, this happens through the constant 
use and exposure to the word of God and its application through other people as they sharpen us and help apply God's word. The Holy Spirit, John 14 says, would attest to the truth. Lead us into all truth. The sheep listen and know, know the shepherd's voice. The second thing Jesus promises us that will happen if we walk by way of the door, that you will be led by God. Psalms 32 says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. The picture in the Old Testament is the Israelites following the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day, that whenever God moved, they moved. The New Testament principle of this is the Holy Spirit within us that literally leads and guides us, convicts of sin, gives us wisdom. Jesus says in John 10, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he will go in and out and find pasture. Taking them in and leading them out. Jesus says, if you trust me, church, I will help you form the rhythms of thriving and rest. Seasons of fruitfulness and pruning. I will give you a purpose in the world and adoption into God's family. I will lead you. Jesus' death on the cross was not just about atonement for our sins, but that he would be our deliverer, that he would lead us out of the bondage to slavery, and he would lead us, as he talks about here, into this abundant life. The third thing, just quickly, and we're going to talk a little bit more about the resurrection, the third thing that you find is sacrificial grace. Ultimately, the thief... And the form of religion and rebellion will sacrifice you to save themselves. This is what is meant by the hireling in this passage. If a dangerous animal came, the shepherd would have a sacrificial lamb somewhere close to them. He would throw that lamb to the wolf so that the shepherd himself could escape without harm. Such a cowardly thing to do. This is how Jesus explains it in verse 12. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But Jesus, in stark contrast in this passage, right, the good shepherd, he cares for the sheep, ultimately gives his life for the sheep. When the wolf comes, Jesus himself becomes that sacrificial lamb. He throws himself to the wolves, Giving us, giving his sheep the very avenue that we would be protected and provided for. He says in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. I lay my life down for the sheep. He says it again in verse 17. For this reason the father loves me because I lay my life down that I may take it up again. Church, we can trust Jesus. He is the good shepherd. And I see this amplified in the stories of the resurrection. Jason read one this morning. I'd like to make just a few little points of application in our lives as we're thinking about this at the hope of Easter, the victory of the cross and the resurrection, asking ourselves this question, what is God trying to teach us through the resurrection? 
few things first. The resurrection is about radical welcome. It's about radical welcome for the most unlikely people. The passage that Jesus read, who is the first person that Jesus appears to after the resurrection? It's not to Peter, not to the twelve. He appears to Mary Magdalene. This is the way Jesus lived and operated. If you don't remember, Mary was the woman who had had seven demons that had been delivered from her and healed of some undescribed illness. It says in John chapter 20, supposing him to be a gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. In verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned to him in Aramaic and said, Rabboni, which means teacher. Why would Jesus make his first appearance to a demonically delivered woman with no social power or influence? She certainly wasn't about to be the one that was going to continue to lead this uprising of Christianity against Rome because Jesus is sending a message. The resurrection is not for strong people who have it all together. Even Jesus said before he died, I didn't come for the well. I came for those that are sick. The resurrection is for the outcast. It's for the spiritually needy. It's for those who have a jacked up resume. It's for those who have a long past of mistakes, frustrations. The kingdom of God is not for good people, but for humble people. Again, quoting Philip Yancey in another book, Rumors of Another World. I love this. He says, Jesus was the first world leader to inaugurate a kingdom with a heroic role for losers. That makes you feel good, doesn't it? Jesus was the first world leader to inaugurate a kingdom with a heroic role for losers. He spoke to an audience raised on stories of wealthy patriarchs, strong kings, and victorious heroes. But much to their surprise, he honored instead people who have little value in the visible world. The poor and meek, the persecuted, those who mourn, social rejects, the hungry and thirsty. His stories consistently featured the wrong people as heroes, right? The prodigal, not the responsible son. The good Samaritan, not the Jew. Lazarus, not the rich man. The tax collector, not the Pharisee. As Charles Spurgeon once said, his glory was that he laid aside his glory. And the glory of the church is when she lays aside her respectability and her dignity and counts it to be her glory to gather together the outcasts. Jesus once told a parable of the great banquet where he sent out the invitations to come into the banquet and many people gave excuses of why they couldn't come. And so he sent his servants out once again and said, I want you to go out and grab the crippled and the lame, the outcast and the forgotten and invite them in. If you're thinking this morning that the resurrection is not for you because you aren't good enough or clean enough or put together enough, then you've missed the message of Jesus. You've missed the message of grace. The resurrection is about radical welcome. But it's also about radical restoration. The resurrection is there. It restores our lives. 
Have you ever thought it odd what Jesus did between his, res- his resurrection and his ascension? This time in history, the 40 days after his resurrection, before his ascension on the Mount of Olives, is celebrated by the church historically in a season called Eastertide. The 40 days between Resurrection Sunday today and the day of ascension. You remember what Jesus spent his time doing and who he spent his time with? It's just astonishing. What would you have done if you think about it for a second? You just conquered Satan, death, and sin. And all of a sudden you find yourself as predicted, as forecasted, as prophesied that you would raise again on the third day. And there you are in the garden, raised from the dead. What would you do? I feel like I would be like some of those crime movies. And I would like uh, just be sitting in Pilate's living room when he comes home. He turns the lamp on and I'm like, hey, you know. Or maybe it's the Roman soldiers as they're cleaning themselves, still trying to get the very blood of Jesus off of them, that maybe I would appear to them and surprise them. Or maybe I would go to Caesar himself and remind him that, Caesar, you are not really the Lord. I am the Lord. But you know what Jesus does? He doesn't appear that we know of to any of them. You know what the Gospels record that Jesus did in those 40 days? He spent time with his friends, not setting up real strategy sessions, knowing that he was working with the ignorant, the faithless disciples. Maybe he could have recruited a new team in those 40 days. However, we see he had a group, no more than 100 and so disciples before he ascended. But Jesus instead spent his 40 days, last 40 days on the earth, with his friends who were confused, filled with doubt, who were struggling, and he restored their faith. The resurrection is about radical restoration. Have you ever been so disappointed in yourself? Maybe you didn't do something you should have done, or you did something you shouldn't have done. You just really blew it. I remember Ashley and I's first Valentine's together. I've told some of you this story before, but it was our first Valentine's together, and she was in uh, Natchitoches at Northwestern, and I just, um, I just assumed that she would not expect me to drive the 50-something miles to Natchitoches to take her out on our first Valentine's, but we could certainly just schedule it for the next weekend or something. She called me, checking in. Her roommate's boyfriend was coming down from Shreveport to take her out on a fancy date, and Ashley was like, well, what are you doing? And I knew I'd blown it at that minute. I had no plans, no reservations. So I got in my Ford Taurus. First car I bought with my own money of my choice. And drove down to uh, take Ashley out. And I showed up and I was in athletic shorts and flip-flops. And she came out in a dress and high heels. And she overlooked the fact that I looked like a bum. And she was like, well, where are we going? I was like, we're going to Ryan's Steakhouse. (laughs) Nothing screams romance and Valentine's Day like a buffet at Ryan's. To make matters worse, they were like out of meat. It was just not a good day. What, What do you mean you're out of meat? What happened? I remember driving home being so disappointed in myself. Something I should have done, right? I thought about Peter as I was reading these 
accounts of Jesus restoring the faith of his friends. Peter, the one upon whom the church was going to be built, that the gates of hell would not prevail, that Peter, Petras, the rock, he denied Jesus three times. He abandoned him in his greatest hour of need. And eventually he finds himself fishing again, taking more than half of the disciples with him back to a familiar shore, familiar body of water, fishing. And it wasn't that Peter hadn't seen Jesus yet. That's not Jesus' first account with Peter. He'd already appeared to Peter three times, but Peter just could not shake the failure that he had experienced in the last few days. You remember the story, they're fishing, and they fished all night, as fishermen would normally do, so they could have a fresh catch in the morning, and they could sell it. And they see Jesus on the shore. It's a familiar scene. It had happened before. Jesus calls to them. They didn't recognize him at first. Hey, have y'all caught anything? No, nothing. He said, try casting your net on the other side of the boat. They catch this huge swell of fish. Peter doesn't even help him pull him in. He just jumps into the water and swims to Jesus. And there, at the, Jesus has a charcoal fire prepared. Same smell that, Jesus, that Peter would have smelt when he denied Jesus around a charcoal fire. And Jesus is using this to restore Peter's faith. He fixes a meal for them. It's amazing how many of these uh, episodes kind of occur around the meal. Jesus shows up. He has a meal with his disciples and restores their faith. Over the meal, he restores Peter. Peter, enough with the fish already, man. You're a shepherd. Say it with me. Shepherd, right? This is what I want you to do. I want you to go and feed my sheep. Jesus made his calling so clear. He said, if you love me, go feed my sheep. You remember this several times. Peter, do you love me? Then go feed my sheep. Something beautiful happens to Peter. His faith is restored. His doubts are dealt with. He would go on to do some incredible things. You remember, he's the one that stands up on Pentecost, delivers this fiery message saying, you crucified the Son of God. He appeared to some of his other friends on the road to Emmaus. Maybe you're familiar with this passage. John records it. As Jesus walks with some of his former followers on the road of Emmaus, this might be some of my, uh, one of my favorite post-resurrection stories. These people are literally walking away from Jerusalem and the other disciples as if their own hopes and dreams have been replaced by doubts and disappointment. And Jesus shows up and again, they don't recognize him in his glorified body. These disciples had been in the very small group, Right? They were at the feet of Jesus until the very end. They had seen the crucifixion. They had heard the sayings from the cross. They had seen the spear in the side. They had seen everything. These weren't the follow at a distant kind of disciples. These were the ones that had the courage to stay with him to the end. And Jesus walked with them and gives us an incredible Bible lesson. 
It says he goes back from the very beginning and starts pointing to, the, to, the, to who Jesus was in the Old Testament. He said, oh, you remember the bread from heaven that fell manna? Oh, yeah, that was me. Remember the, remember the, remember the rock that poured forth and satisfied your uh, thirst? Oh, that was me. Remember the Passover lamb that passed through the fire? The blood over the doorways absorbing the wrath of God? Yeah, that was me, Jesus says. The bread from heaven. It was really about Jesus. Again and again, their eyes finally opened again as he's having a meal with them. As he broke bread, it says that they remembered and they commented to one another, didn't the word of God burn in our hearts as he spoke? Jesus loves to meet people and restore their faith. Even as they're walking away, he restores their hope. There's another passage in John 20 where he spends time with Thomas. Do you remember this? You might remember his nickname, Doubting Thomas. His faith was just destroyed by the crucifixion. And he's one of those that leans more to our skeptical side of things anyway. And so Jesus shows up to the disciples and Thomas is not there. And so later they're telling Thomas about it and said, hey man, Jesus, he really did. He was here. He was hanging with us. Yeah, man, we had the whole fish. We ate a meal together. It was amazing. If you can only imagine. And Thomas tells the others, I don't believe you. And in the pain of his own doubt, he says, until I put my fingers in the scars, I'm not going to believe. A week later, Jesus appears. And he's so gentle with Thomas. And he says, hey, Thomas, you want to come put your hand? You want to come put your finger through the scars? His words actually quoted in John 20 are, do not disbelieve, but believe. The resurrection is about radical welcome. The resurrection is about restoring people's faith and hope. And ultimately, the resurrection is about an invitation to real, eternal life. It's an invitation to come and walk with Jesus. It's an invitation, as John 10 says, to have life and have it abundantly. Not just a feeling or believing something. Not just saying, yes, I believe in this Jesus stuff. No, but that Jesus would be the Lord of your life. The Holy Spirit would enter in and take residence. He would become the loudest voice in your head. He would be the standard by which your entire life would orbit around. Not that we hope that we go to heaven one day or even that we're secure of that, but that you could have eternal life now, life full of joy, life overflowing and abundance. Mark Sayer says this, the elephant in the living room of contemporary Christianity is people's ability to simply sit in church, to consume the experience the, one, the way one would a great sporting event, a thrilling movie, or an exciting theme park ride, and then to dispose of it totally unchanged on the soul level as they leave the sanctuary or gymnasium, right? Sure, they feel challenged, encouraged, or even moved. But the horizontal self simply feels the experience and moves on. Listen, church, that is not the hope of Jesus for us this morning. Or for the millions are gathered on Easter Sunday. The hope is not that we would just feel something, that we would be encouraged by warm stories, that we would feel this sense of peace that God's on my side, but that we would be radically changed. Radically changed. The resurrection isn't something we just move on from. 
It's the power of God working in us to make us new. It's trusting Jesus and giving up life, giving up our life so that we may receive his life in us and we may experience life abundantly. It's walking with Jesus. Jesus describes this kind of life in John 10 as life more abundant. He describes it in John 15 verse 11 by saying, These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. I want you to close your eyes and bow your heads just for a minute and work right where you're at. I'm not doing any sort of altar call or trying to manipulate any decision in your own mind or heart. I would never do such a thing. But I do want you to pray and ask the Holy Spirit would speak to you this morning. On a soul level, maybe you would hear his words and you need to hear the words of encouragement. You've been walking through this unbelievably hard time and you need to hear him remind you that he's the good shepherd. And the hardest thing you could possibly walk through is not compared to the difficulty that he took when he bared or bore your sins on the cross. But that even in your suffering that he whispers to you, I'm with you. I'm the good shepherd. I don't leave my sheep. Even though this is dark, be encouraged. I'm with you. Maybe you've been playing a religious game for a long time. Maybe you've bought the lie of the enemy. You've just been trying to be just good enough and you're finding it exhausting. Maybe you would put your trust in him. Walk through that door. Place your faith and trust in Jesus this morning. Maybe for the rest of us, this resurrection victory could be our new anthem. Life and life abundantly as we trust Jesus. Let me ask you this one last question as you're As you pray, how's the resurrection going to make your life different tomorrow? How does it change your hope and dreams? How does it influence your to-do list? God, I thank you for the church. Lord, your bride. Lord, we have all the reason in the world to celebrate. Thank you for your death on our behalf. Thank you that those weren't just words that you said. Greater love hath no man than this than he laid on his life for his friends. But you did that. And just as you prophesied three days later, everything changed. That you spent time restoring the hope and faith of these disciples. And I pray that in a room this large, certainly there's people who have some real spiritual baggage. Or that you would bring restoration. Many are in this phase of rebellion and they're just chasing after their sin and what feels right at the moment. And they're tasting the bitterness of the consequences thereof. And I pray, Father, they would turn from that and turn to you. They would hear you calling out to them. I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus, thank you for your victory in the resurrection. As we stand here in a moment and sing our anthem of Jesus Christ dying for our sins, buried, raised on the third day, 
and coming again for us. In your mighty name that we pray, amen.